into some uh, subsets of the overall book of uh, Matthew, and we're in one now called Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom. This is actually the, the bulk of the middle of the book of Matthew. is kind of just this episodic structure of, you know, Jesus uh, did this miracle, and here's what some people thought about it. And then Jesus met this person, here's what happened, and here's what some people thought about it. And um, just lots of things that he did and what it all looked like for the people of the time and um, how that relates to the, uh, the greater picture of Matthew and the gospel. Um, so we're soldiering on with that. Uh, today we're going to um, look at uh, two people who, uh, who have problems and what Jesus is going to do for them through the, through the interactions that he has with them. So two, uh, two separate ones. So I'm, I'm calling this, uh, this sermon, The Doctor is In. Um, because we're, talk, we're going to talk later on about how uh, Jesus uh, talks about himself as a doctor and, uh, and why that is. So uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. We're going to read the whole passage. Even though it's kind of two episodes together, we're going to read the whole thing, and then we'll, we'll come back around and look at them uh, in depth. So uh, we're in Matthew chapter 9, starting in, uh, in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold... Some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, again, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he, the paralytic, rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." So before we, before we start breaking this down, just a word about uh, the chronology um, of Matthew and, and the other Gospels as well. A lot of times the stories are not necessarily grouped in the order that they actually occurred. They might, might be grouped a little more thematically. Uh, I think that might be the case with a lot of the stories here in the middle of Matthew, uh, that it kind of makes sense to put these next to each other because they're saying a, uh, a similar thing. Um, I think that's the case with these two stories. I think that they are saying a similar thing, and that's why um, it's fun to preach them together. We'll, we'll figure out what that is later. Um, but it's interesting to note that um, these stories come up in Mark 2 and Luke 5 as well. And, uh, and they're coupled together right next to each other in both of those cases um, also. Um, most, most biblical scholars are pretty sure that Mark is the earliest gospel that was written. And then Matthew and Luke uh, were written later and took some elements from Mark. Um, you know, used, used some of the structure and the the stories as the basis for their Gospels through the Holy Spirit, of course, um, and then another source that's, that's probably been lost to the ether of just a collection of sayings and, and episodes and things like that. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, even, even Luke, who says, I want to make 
I want to make my book the one that's really orderly and really well organized, he does put these two together anyway. So I think that they're, they're pretty clearly uh, supposed to be linked um, for, for some reason anyway. So let's look at uh, starting out with the paralyzed man, the story of the paralyzed man here, with that out of the way. Um, I'm going to read it again just so we have it fresh in our minds. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So let's, let's put ourselves in context here for a second. I have a map here because last week Chris talked about how Jesus had crossed over the Sea of Galilee to an area. He encountered some demon-possessed men. This is the story where he cast out the demons. They went into a herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs went and drowned themselves. And the people said, can you please, please, please leave? So he comes back. So this is, this is coming back. So... The, where, the, the area where the demon-possessed men happened was on the eastern side. I don't think you can read it. It says the Gerasene Territory. That's the, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now they're kind of crossing over in a diagonal line towards the northwest to Capernaum, which is, which is Jesus' home base. This is where, you know, he's, he's centered. He's from the area of Galilee. He's from Nazareth, but um, he sort of centers his ministry in Capernaum. Um, so he's, uh, he's coming back to his home base from, from that excursion over to that area. It's also the home area of a lot of his disciples. Um, many of his disciples were fishermen. They were from this fishing town of Capernaum. Um, and so um, they knew this area. The people there uh, knew him. And some, some people think that uh, this, this healing of the paralytic man um, took place in the, the home of uh, maybe Peter. Um, earlier we had the, the miracle where uh, Jesus came to Peter's house and he found his mother-in-law was very ill and he healed her. And then a lot of people came to be healed at that house. So some people think this happened right then, right after that. Um, right after that happened. So it's at Peter's house. It could have been uh, maybe one of the other disciples' houses too. We're not entirely sure. Um, but just get the scene here of um, Jesus is in a house. And, um, and Matthew doesn't say this, but this is actually the same paralyzed man who you read in, in Mark and Luke who was actually lowered through a hole in the ceiling. So if we want to set that scene for ourselves, you know, Jesus is maybe towards the back of the house. He's preaching to people, but there's a press of people just trying to cram their way in the door any way they possibly can. They're all, you know, crammed in there, maybe sitting in tight quarters or standing around. Um, and then pieces of the ceiling start falling in. And then some very, very paralyzed and palsied man is lowered down on ropes and just kind of deposited there in front of Jesus. Um, it's, a, it's like a circus. Like we're, you, we need to think about Jesus' ministry as like, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on around him all the time too. You know, he's trying to preach, but there's probably some, you know, people looking for healing and they're calling out. And so this is a, it's a, it's a bit of a zoo. But um, the man is sort of lowered down, deposited there in front of Jesus um, his buddies are on the, you know, on the roof, probably looking through, wondering what's going to happen. And Jesus sees the man, and he's particularly impressed that they, they have so much faith, the man and his friends, in Jesus, that the, they're willing to vandalize a stranger's property to drop him through onto the floor. Um, obviously, they have a lot of faith in that Jesus uh, has, has something to, to give this man. Um, and Jesus' first reaction is this quote. 
take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Um, so not immediately does he heal this person. So the reaction that we might think from the people on the roof and maybe from the man is, is okay, but I'm also severely paralyzed. I kind of was thinking maybe that was, that was what you were going to do is heal me because you've been healing people. Um, so that, that could have been their reaction. I'd like to think that the fact that they, that Jesus is impressed with their faith in him, that maybe that's not their reaction, that they are blessed by that. They understand what that means, but um, the reality of the matter is Jesus is triaging this patient. This person who's been brought to him, uh, Jesus is looking at him. He's assessing the situation, and just like if, you, if someone is brought to the ER with severe bleeding, but they also have a broken ankle, the people in the ER don't say, well, let's take care of this broken ankle first, and then we'll worry about stopping the bleeding. They triage the situation, and they say, I think the most important thing to do right now would be to stop the bleeding, and then we'll worry about the lesser stuff. So this is triage at its finest from Jesus here. Um, he sees that the man's number one problem is that he's a sinner. And the number one thing that he needs is to be forgiven of those sins. So he does it. First Samuel says that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So when Jesus is looking at this man, he's looking at his heart and seeing that his heart is the thing that needs to be healed more than anything else, even though he's severely disabled. So the man and his friends, we don't know what their, what their reaction may have been. If it was disappointment, maybe, or if it was, this, this is great, I, I feel legitimately healed of my sin, it's very possible. But we do know what the reaction was of the scribes who happened to be there, crammed into that house. And their reaction was outrage. Because... Jesus is, in, is appearing to think that he can impart forgiveness of sins, which in the Pharisees' minds is something that only God can do. They're actually right about that, but they don't believe Jesus is God. So they have some issues. They, they say only God can forgive sin. I mean, it would be like me just going to someone randomly who has tons and tons of IRS debt and said, don't worry, your debt's all canceled. But there's IRS agents there who are like, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. Um... Only the IRS can forgive debts, and we don't do that, obviously. But, um, so it breaks down. But seriously, Jesus is saying, I, I will forgive your sins. And the Pharisees are like, that's not how that works. Because only God can forgive sins because when we sin, the only person we sin against is God. That comes from uh, Psalm 51, where David has sinned greatly, and he writes a psalm, and, and he says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Sin is primarily against God. We may hurt other people uh, in the act of sin, but sin is primarily against God. Therefore, God can only, is the only one who is allowed to forgive sin. Furthermore, they can't substantiate the claim that Jesus is making here that the man's sins are forgiven because there's no tangible evidence that it's even occurred. And because of those two things, the fact that only God can forgive and the fact that they can't look at the man and say, well, obviously, look, his sins are forgiven. Their reaction is to, to mutter amongst themselves, this guy's blaspheming. He's either putting himself in the position of God or he's saying that God is like any of us and we can forgive sin too. Either way, that's blasphemy in their mind. So they're very, very, very angry at, at this first part of what Jesus is going to do. I mean, Let's call it what it is. Jesus has already performed a miracle here. He has forgiven a man's sins. 
There's another miracle coming, but a miracle has already taken place. But their reaction to it is to mutter blasphemy. So um, Jesus has a reaction to that. He hears that, that critique, and he, in a sense, says, well, how about I prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins? Because a big theme that that you're going to see recurring throughout the book of Matthew is the fact that Jesus has great authority. When When we heard the story about he calmed the winds and the waves, and the disciples say, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? He has authority over even the winds and the waves. And so here, Jesus is going to say, I have authority to forgive sins. And forgiveness of sins is not easily verifiable on visual examination. So he says to them, which is easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to say get up and walk? So on face value, both of them are easy to say. You can say the words either way. In the minds of the Pharisees, it would probably be more difficult to say your sins are forgiven because it carries a lot more spiritual weight in their minds. However, they also know that healing someone from paralysis such as this is not something that anyone can just do. They've seen prophets do it, you know, in the Old Testament. So they know it's, it happens. But they know that the people that are able to heal are not blasphemers. They know that the people who are able to heal are gifted that ability from God. So when Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, then he turns to the man and says, get up and take your bed and go home. And the guy gets up, takes his bed, and gets out of there. This crazy zoo. So what Jesus is doing is saying, look, if I have the power to heal a paralyzed man so that he can get up, pick up his bed, and leave, how can I be a blasphemer? And if I'm not a blasphemer, then I have the authority to forgive sins, and I just did it five minutes ago. So the Pharisees, or the scribes and Pharisees who are there at this point should kind of be like, well, now I don't know what to think, right? Because I've seen a physical miracle that I, I can eyeball it and say, that just happened. <laughs> the guy got up and left. I can't say, well, I don't know if that was real or not. But I might still think that about the forgiveness of, of sins miracle that had happened. But the point is, Jesus has demonstrated by by performing a second miracle, has demonstrated that the first miracle has occurred. That's what we should be thinking here. So the reaction now to the second miracle, we don't get the Pharisees and scribes' reaction, we get the people's reaction. The people's reaction here was they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. That's what it says. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. So again, They're being brought back to the fact that Jesus has this authority. Now, they're saying that he's a man, which is true. It's an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is, but it's true. At this point, that's pretty good for them to say, God has given authority to this person to forgive sins. And I have evidence evidence of it because of the the lesser miracle that that he performed just after that. We know if we read further on in Matthew that, by and large, the scribes and the Pharisees still don't quite believe it. But the people glorify God, and they were afraid. And it's the same thing with the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm. 
they're relieved that they're alive, but they're also a little bit afraid of the authority that's been placed in this person that's standing in front of them. Same with the people here. They're a little bit afraid, but they're glorifying God. I mean, there's a, there's a legitimate, legitimacy to, to having some fear of a man who can forgive sins because you know that he is something that they've never seen before. The prophets didn't have the rights to forgive sins. They would direct to God. But here is Jesus, and he's doing that. So, but again, if we want to sum this up, Jesus sees this man and says, my chief concern for you is that you are a sinful person, and I am going to heal you of that sin. That's the problem that you came to me with, is your sin, and I am healing you of that problem. The Pharisees don't think it should be that easy. They don't think it should be as easy as someone saying, your sins are forgiven, no matter who you are. Because they have a system for that. They have a temple system to get stuff like that done. They have a temple system. They have a kingdom system. There's a kingdom system. The temple system that the Pharisees are, are familiar with is there's some sacrifices involved. There's some rituals of, involved of cleaning yourself before you're allowed to do those sacrifices. There's a lot of rules you have to follow. Uh, it, it costs money to do this stuff. You remember there's a story of Jesus who goes into the temple court and sees that they're selling a lot of stuff. They're selling animals for sacrifice and things like that. And he's so angered by that that he, kicks, he like drives them out with a whip because there was a system for buying sacrifices too. So again, if you're poor, you're kind of out of luck. So the Pharisees are kind of upset like, hey, it really shouldn't be this easy because we have a lot of rules and things that you're supposed to go through. You offer a sacrifice, you say the right thing, you're, all, you're clean at the time. Then, you know, the priest can say, upon this, your sins are forgiven. Come back tomorrow and do the same thing again. And Jesus goes around all that and says, your sins are forgiven. Because I'm Jesus. I am allowed to do that. I have the authority to do that. And this makes the Pharisees incredibly angry. But the very thing that makes them incredibly angry should make us incredibly happy because we don't want to have to deal with all that stuff. We should be happy to say to, say to ourselves, all I have to do is come to Jesus, deposit myself on the floor, and say, I have faith that you can heal what I have, which is my sin. And he will say, your sins are forgiven. And then it's over. You get up, you take your bed, and you go home. That's it. That should make us incredibly happy. But the Pharisees who are so tied up in their Old Testament legalism say, I really don't like how that sounds. That sounds way too easy. So for this, for this paralyzed man who, you know, is just sitting there and Jesus does it for him, I mean, it's like, it's like a homeless person saying, excuse me, Jesus, could I have a little bit of change? Could you heal my paralysis? And Jesus doesn't just say, here's $100. He says, how about I adopt you into, into my family and you live with me forever? I mean, that's, that's the sort of exchange that's taking place here. The paralyzed man is and his friends are probably expecting to just be healed. And Jesus offers so much more than that because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to forgive sin and he came to transform sinners. And this healing event that we're seeing right here with this, with this paralyzed man is just a shadow of the greater reality that we're going to see on the cross when Jesus does it in a much more macro, universal scale. He pays for all sins for all time at one time, once for all, on the cross. So that's the paralyzed man. Now the scene changes. 
We're going to look at starting in verse 9. Let's read these again. So as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, here there again, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus again, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So a little bit of background on this scene. Uh, Matthew's a tax collector. He works for the Roman Empire. He, I mean, he works for Herod Antipas, who's kind of the, the puppet governor of this area. And he's at Capernaum. So a lot of scholars figure that there are probably these booths of tax collectors set out, probably outside the city, almost like toll booths or custom booths. So it's a fishing town. You catch some, you go out to the lake. If you're Peter, James, John, Andrew, you go out to the lake, you catch a bunch of fish, you bring it in, and probably right there on the shore, you line it up, and people come buy some fish, you take their money. When you're done, you head back into town, and then there's Matthew at the tax collector. Booth. How much did you make today? I'm going to take this much of it. So he taxes them right then and there, right as they're on their way in. And uh, this is all going to the Roman Empire. They hire the local Jews to get the job done. Uh, and then the rest of the local Jews are not pleased about that because they hate the Roman Empire and tax collectors are traitors. You're, you're working for them. You're, you're paying them. Beside the fact that a lot of tax collectors like Zacchaeus um, had, had a pretty sweet gig going, they thought, and they said, well, they don't know what the, the tax rate is, so if I charge them a little bit more, a little bit more pocket the difference, plus I get paid, I'm going to have a pretty great life. So there was a lot of that going on. And consider this. So if Matthew's at Capernaum, Peter and Andrew, James, and John are from Capernaum area. They're fishermen. They may have had to interact with Matthew a few times and pay taxes to this dude. And maybe they've gotten fleeced by this guy before. And, I mean, beside the fact, Jesus has some disciples who are serious rebels towards the Roman Empire. There's a, there's a disciple named Simon the Zealot, and the Zealots were, like, violently anti-Roman. So there's a lot, there could have been some bad blood between the other disciples and Matthew. We don't know, but there could have been. So just again, to think about the, the ragtag group that Jesus is, is assembling here. But here's the quote that Jesus has for Matthew. He doesn't say anything else to him. He walks up to the booth and he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows him. Now, we should think right away, because it was only a few verses before, when he says to the paralyzed man, get up, take your bed, and go home. And here he says, to Matthew, follow me, and Matthew rises up and follows him to a house. It doesn't say whose house, it says the house. Um, could have been Peter's house again. I would be willing to bet Peter's mother-in-law says, never again are you having people over. So I think it might be Matthew's house. So they're probably at Matthew's house, especially because other tax collectors come over and sinners, and they have a dinner party for Jesus, for his disciples, for Matthew, and bring all your friends. So they're at this house um, and having dinner, probably having a lot of fun, probably being kind of loud, as people of this ilk tend to be. And that's when the Pharisees and the scribes, again, who are probably tailing Jesus, show up, 
and, uh, and they say to his disciples, maybe they were more on the outskirts, and they pull him aside and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Some, some translations have the word sinners here in quotes um, because there's, there's a specific definition that the Pharisees are using for sinners here. They have a couple different definitions of this word that they're using. Number one would be those who don't follow the ceremonial Old Testament laws, which for sure the disciples and Jesus at certain points fall into this camp because the disciples are working with a lot of dirty fish. And I mean, there's, there's stories where they're walking through a field on the Sabbath and they start picking off, you know, corn or whatever, and they're eating it on the Sabbath. And someone's like, that's technically harvesting. You're not allowed to do that. The disciples don't even think about that. So the disciples for sure fit into this category of we just don't really care that much about washing our hands constantly and not doing certain things. But then there's a second definition. Those people who are number one, but also they live particularly sinful lives, so the tax collectors and prostitutes would fall into this. Not only do we not really follow those Old Testament laws, we don't try to keep ourselves ceremonially clean, we don't offer sacrifices all the time, but they also have these jobs or they live these lives that are less than squeaky clean. So the Pharisees are pointing out both things, but I, I think they're probably more likely pointing out the second one as a bigger deal to them. Because those people exist as ceremonial un, ceremonially unclean. You're not even supposed to touch those people or you're, you're going to have to wash your hands and do the whole ritual again. And having someone over to your house for dinner is an extremely intimate interaction for people of this time. It is still today, but I don't think we quite grasp, like, when you have someone to your house and you feed them and you share a meal with them, that's an extremely close relationship. So Jesus is just not concerned about these cleanliness laws at all. He's sharing food with prostitutes, shaking hands, sharing cups, all of that stuff. And they bring it up, the the Pharisees bring it up, and uh, Jesus hears it. And that's when he kind of gently chides them a little bit here. So he, and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, go and learn is, this, is kind of an old-timey didactic term. Like at the end of a lesson that a Pharisee or a teacher would give, he would say, so go and learn what I have said, the end. So it's something that a teacher would say to like young Padawan students or something. So he's talking down to them right away. Like, you need to go and learn what this means. Not only that, he quotes the Old Testament, which they know inside and out. But he's saying, you need to go and read your Bible a little better. Oh, that's a burn. Go and learn the Old Testament to a Pharisee? Ouch. So he's quoting Hosea chapter 6. So we need to learn what this means too. So let's look at Hosea 6. We're going to start in verse 4, even though he starts in you know, we're right there in verse 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgments go forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So what he's doing here, I mean, some translations say steadfast love instead of mercy. Um, What he's doing here is he's equating the scribes with these Old Testament Hebrew people who God was really mad at. And he's mad at them 
because they've lost the core principle of what the Old Testament law was supposed to do for them, but they've preserved the shell of the sacrificial system and legalism and all of that stuff. They're just going on with it, but they, they don't understand why it was there in the first place. It was there in the first place so that the people would understand, I can't do any of this. This is impossible. And it should send them running to God for help and say, I don't know how I'm supposed to do this. Will you please just help me and have mercy on me? That's what the Old Testament law is supposed to do. It's not supposed to be a checklist. But that's what they're, te- that's what they're using it as. So when he brings up this passage, he's saying not only are you just like the Old Testament Hebrews, but he's saying, don't you understand that it's not about sacrifice? It's about my mercy and my steadfast love. So Isaiah chapter 1 gets at this too. A couple verses from there, God says through Isaiah, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And then in 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. So he's saying, you've been doing all these sacrifices to, to you know, get rid of your sin, but I, sacrifices aren't doing it. What you need to do is come to me and I will cleanse your sins. And now Jesus is here. He is the embodiment of that truth from Isaiah. So if the Pharisees understood what Hosea and Isaiah were getting at, then they would say, well, it makes perfect sense that Jesus is hanging out with these people because they need him, they need his mercy and love, and they know it. And I need it too. But they're not saying that. So Jesus has a different definition of sinners. Everyone! So sometimes when you read that verse and, and, and Jesus says, you know, I came not to call the righteous but sinners, it's, it's like he's saying to them, I didn't come for you, so just get out of here. But really what it gets at is, I came for you too because you're sinners. There's nobody else. There is no one righteous. It's all sinners. That's why he came, to forgive sin and transform sinners, of which we all are. So that's the first half of my sermon. Um, how much time do I have? Just kidding. Okay. Conclusion, I think there's three things that we can get out of these two passages. Fairly basic things. Number one, Sin is the problem that we all have. I think that's pretty clear from what we've read so far already today. Sin is a problem that we all have. If we want to keep going with this medical thing about, you know, the doctor aspect of it, it's a pandemic. We all have it. We were born with it. We inject more of it into ourselves every day. We're just chock full of it. And then the second thing is, some of us don't recognize that that's a problem. Some of us don't recognize that we have that problem. Some of us have been sold the lie that we're not sick with sin. Or, maybe even more more prevalent, is that, yeah, we believe we're coming down with something, but with a strict regimen of hard work, diet and exercise, we can make ourselves healthy. I tend to be the kind of person that says, if I I feel myself getting a little bit sick, it's best to just deny that it's even happening. Because as soon as I admit, like, yeah, I'm sick, I'll get really sick, um... But if I just start to think, oh, it's, I, I'm not sick, I don't know what you're talking about, then I might start to feel better. 
But the Bible doesn't teach that sort of thing. That's a flat-out lie from the pit of hell. So with a strict regimen of hard work, we're still filthy sinners. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. Other religions will teach that. Other relig- religions will say, yeah, we have, a lot of, we have a lot of problems. We're not good people. But we have some things that we can do that will make us more acceptable to God. It's a certain number of prayers or it's a certain way of doing things. It's a certain way of dressing and blah, 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 blah. Um, and if we do those things, then we make ourselves a little bit less of a sinner and we might be a little bit better off. That's not in the Bible. That's what the Pharisees believe. The Pharisees bought that lie. That lie that says, if I keep on doing all this stuff, if I keep washing my hands in a certain way and doing the sacrifices in a certain way, I'll be okay. And, to, and if that's what you believe, then Jesus is saying, I didn't come for you. I'm, I don't have anything to tell you then. That's kind of chilling. I mean, here's a sidebar. The Pharisees, the Pharisees are asking the disciples, okay, Jesus is a doctor. Why does the doctor spend all day with sick people? That doesn't make sense to us. It makes perfect sense when we think about it in the doctor sense. Well, because doctors have a lot to offer sick people. They don't have a lot to offer people who are not sick. So, sorry. Um, the Pharisees are really good at diagnosing sin. I see sin, I see sin, I see sin, I see sin. You came into my office, you have sin. There you go. But they're terrible at treating it. They're great at diagnosing sin in people. They run around all the time saying, tax collector is a sinner, a prostitute is a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. But they have nothing else to offer besides that because that's what the law does. The law points out your sin and then lets you sit with it. That's all it can do. And it's not, if, if you're a Christian, it's not your job to confront sin in lives of unbelievers. It is not your job. It's your job to confront sin in the life of a believer who says they're a believer but they're living in sin. Absolutely, you go after them. But if they're a non-believer, you have no business talking to them about their sin. I mean, Westboro Baptist Church makes headlines all the time for going and picketing and telling people that they're sinners. It's not going to do any good. It's not our job to tell unbelievers that they're sinners. It's our job to bring unbelievers to Jesus who can heal their sin. They might not even know about it. It's our job to bring them to Jesus, not to tell them how bad of a person they are. So telling an unbeliever to stop sinning and live a more righteous life is like telling an apple to drive more carefully. Apples can't drive. Why would you tell them that? No one can be expected to kill sin in their life apart from being literally recreated by Christ and given the strength to do that through the Spirit. Without that, it's pointless. So the Pharisees are on a fool's errand when they're running around telling everyone about their sin. Okay, that's a sidebar. That's for free. So, last point. Jesus has come to forgive sin and transform sinners. This is the good news, right? Sin is a problem that we all have. Some of us don't even know we have the problem, but the good news is Jesus has come. He's the great physician, and he has the authority to forgive sins. He's demonstrated it. I heard a speaker one time say, everyone probably would say if asked, would you like to have a miracle in your life? Everyone would say, yes, I would like to have a miracle in my life. That sounds nice. Every miracle starts with a problem. If you don't have a problem, sorry, you're not going to get a miracle today because there's nothing to do. If you want a miracle, first thing you got to admit is that you have a problem. Do you have a problem? Yes? Then you are a candidate for a miracle. The paralyzed man had a problem. His main problem was sin. His secondary problem was paralysis. 
He showed up. He knew he had a problem. They had faith that Jesus was the one to help him out. He gets a miracle. Jesus didn't say to the paralyzed man, oh, I, uh, I see that you expect something from me, but you're extremely dirty. Can you clean yourself up and come back and we'll see what we can do? He said, your sins are forgiven. When he encountered Matthew at the booth, he didn't say, hi, Matthew, my, uh, my name's Jesus, and um, I think that you should quit your job and stop cheating people. I think you should give back all the money and then, uh, and then come and follow me after that. He said, follow me. That's it. Because Jesus came to forgive sin and transform sinners. That's what he came to do. And to close, I have a passage here from Titus chapter 3. I think really sums this up. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. People hated us and we hated them. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, that's Jesus. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We come to Jesus asking for a little, and he gives us adoption. He says, you will be heirs of eternal life. Because he's in the business of forgiving sin and transforming sinners. So what does he say to us today? What's his quote for us? Take heart, your sins are forgiven, so follow me. That's what he has to say to us today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for coming to this earth for living the life that you did and demonstrating to us who you are, the authority that you have, and your mission to forgive our sins and transform us, bring us back to you, to heal us of the problem that we all have, our sin. I pray that though it's hard, that you would work in our hearts for us to recognize the problem to recognize our disease of sin, that we are perpetuating it every day, but that by your blood, you have covered those sins and you would come to heal us, adopt us into your family, have us follow you, that you make that possible by your death on the cross and that you pour out this grace richly and you do not hold back. We thank you, we worship you, in your name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.